podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Pirate Rugby Podcast. Thank you so much to our 200 YouTube subscribers. Thank you so much for supporting us, guys. Our next goal is 250. So if you're watching this and you haven't subscribed, please hit the button. It really helps us out. If you leave a comment, we always reply to everybody. So get in the mixer and have a discussion with us. We really love it. Don't forget, you can also get this podcast in audio format on both Apple and Spotify. Our last podcast was our most listened to one yet. So thank you so much to everybody for that. If you drop us a review, it really helps us grow. We also have a sub stack, which you can check out. All the links for that will be in the description boxes below. You can click on it. You can see long form written content that we do and links to all of our latest videos and things and our socials and all of that. This week, I don't have my friend and colleague Ender with me. Unfortunately, he has commitments in real life. But I've got an equally capable and equally Irish Caelan Scully joining me tonight. How are you, Caelan? Um, I've been better, you. I won't lie. It's It's been a rough couple of days. Um, no one likes to be starting a new job and dealing with the grief of another quarterfinal loss at the same time. But you know what? The URC is back. The World Cup is only for scrubs. We'll motor on. Exactly, exactly. Have Have New Zealand ever won the URC? That's That's my question. That's it. I have England. We might get into that another time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that another yeah. time. Anyway, let's do our moments of the week, mate. Do you have a do you have a specific moment you look back on over the last week of rugby and think, yes, that's what does it for me? This this is gonna seem very basic, but um rugby is the moment <laughs> of the week. Like I've never been so enthralled and so heartbroken in one weekend. Like you start with Wales, Argentina, and I'll hold my hand up here. I was rooting for Wales in an empty pub and no one was really watching it. Um, we all were, actually. All five of us were rooting for Wales. I'll give you that. <laughs> Not a commonplace in Ireland. And it just even though it wasn't the greatest game, it was utterly enthralling. You didn't know what was coming next. You, you think about Dyer and his break. You think about the the intercept by, um, by Nico Sanchez. A, a load of moments bigger going off injured felt huge bigger not kicking the points to make it 13 nil felt huge and and so on and so forth then are the new zealand we won't talk about that but it was a great game <laughs> i think that's fair to say it was an England, epic game it was epic it was unbelievable and i couldn't fault the irish team like from minute not even minute one from minute minus 10 when they came out for the anthems and the figure of eight for the for the um for the hacker to the end and dying with their boots on like i could not fault that team then england fiji fiji so close to winning fiji should have won it like we discussed it on my own podcast fiji really should have won that how often do you see a team with such a dominant scrum that dominant that they actually don't end up winning and they don't get changed from it it's rare england should be counting their blessings yeah. if only they had a nice scrummaging team to play against next week but they don't they have south africa to come we get into that as well and then France and Africa is possibly the greatest game of rugby I've ever watched. And I've been watching rugby a long time. I'm sure there's listeners of yours who'll say, no, it's it's X or Y, it's Super Rugby or Curry Cup or, or you know Welsh Premiership or whatever it is. I don't know. But listen, it was utterly fascinating from minute one, like literally from minute one. It was like it was played in time to two speed. And rugby was the winner. And it's it's promised to rain all weekend in Paris this weekend again for another weekend of world cup semi-finals but we got our finals last week we got absolutely 
unbelievable entertainment. Like you, you couldn't ask for more. Yeah, I think that was one of the things about the Ireland All Blacks game is when it finished, you're like, we've got another one of these tomorrow. And I think everyone was confident, like the, the one tomorrow is going to be as good as this. It was like a, it's like a festival with two headline acts of both of your favourite bands. And yeah, it, it was incredible. My moment of the week came from the Sunday night game. It's it's an obvious one. It's not niche. You know, I like to be niche, but this isn't niche at all. It's South Africa opting for a scrum off the mark because I think everyone who was reclining... How often this, have you seen that in your life? I've never seen it. And, you know, and I was reclining on my sofa like many people were who weren't in the stadium. And I think as soon as they opt for the mark, everyone just sort of leant forward and were like, what is what's going to happen here? What are they going to do? Because it, it was... It clearly wasn't just like a visa was just like, yeah, call a mark and uh, call for a scrum. It was like, a, we've discussed this. This is a plan. Everyone's looking up to Razzy to see what color light he's waving. Like, and then, of course, Razzy comes out and explains it later. And everything he said made perfect sense. You don't get to scrum against France very much. It's still very South African. Most teams don't go, we want to scrum more. But, you know, that's the DNA of the box. So he comes out and said, we don't get, you don't get to scrum France very much. Um, so we wanted to do that and they love a long kicking battle so if we'd have marked it and then kicked it back to them they love that that's what they live for and the forwards will just stand on the halfway line wait for whoever makes a mistake and then walk to the line out so we wanted to get their forwards in a scrum and tire them out and you're like this man is a genius i know it's when he says it like that it sounds like oh yeah oh well, obviously that yeah it feels like i could have thought of it but obviously you couldn't and yeah, yeah. and it, it was a it was a proper what's name measuring contest as well, wasn't it? It was yeah. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> let's just let's come on, let's find out who the real winner of this is. And then my sub supplementary moment is the tap and go for Etzebeth's try, when you know in that in that game state where Umbanombi has the ball down and he's looking around at the back and they all start lining up. You're like, no, but surely not. And then they do it and Etzebeth just goes like, give me the ball, lads, and he takes about ten Frenchmen over the try line with him. No, it was an unbelievable score as well, wasn't it? Like, yeah. I know it was up against Shallybear, and that's kind of, you know, Shallybear is not the world's greatest tackler. But, like, it's it's just Etzebeth at his best. He picks a weakness. He was unbelievable on the night. And it's it's such a non-premiership thing to say, but I'm so happy he's not talking out in Tolman Park this weekend. I would not want... He is one of the greatest rugby players of this generation. I don't want to play him because he's that good. He makes the Sharks that much better. Yeah. Oh my God. Does he still play for the? Does he? Has he moved? Does he still play for the Sharks? I thought he might have moved because it was too long, like a year ago. I think he moves clubs quite he a was lot. Def- it was definitely with the Sharks last year. Yeah, he was because um, he lost at Parker Scarlets when some Costello didn't know. Yeah, he's still at the Sharks. So we're, he's we're still at the Sharks. Cool. There's cool. 15 seconds for people to jump over. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, so let's let's talk about rugby some more. So, um. From your point of view, then, mate, as an Ireland fan, you talked about your de- dealing with the, the grief of it. Where does this leave Ireland now? Is this, you know, some journalists have come out and said we need to rebuild, we need to wipe the slate clean, and or is this a kind of a you fell off your horse, you get back on it, and you carry on riding type of situation? You absolutely carry on. Like I don't care how many faces of media come out and say these things on off the ball or on content stealing platforms i really couldn't give a shit about this rebuild rubbish 
you don't rebuild after you lose by four points to an All Blacks team who were unbelievable. If that happened, we'd have no Lions series since 2005, for instance. Zero, I, I, zero handling errors from the All Blacks. They were, apart yeah. from Georgie Barrett missing a kick, they were perfect. Yeah. It, like Sam Kane and Ardy Surveyor had probably both of their best games in an All Black shirt. And that's saying something because Ardy Surveyor has had a lot of great games over the last five years in particular. I think if you want to talk about rebuild, right, you probably are looking at rugby as a barbarian or NFL concept, realistically. It's the same thing gets brought up after every loss or before you play Italy in the Six Nations or before you have that like one autumn game against maybe Japan or Fiji or whatever. That's not sport. Like Sport is not this. It's not Jonah Loma rugby challenge. I wish it was sometimes because it would make games more entertaining from time to time. But that's not what it is. And Ireland will not be rebuilding. I think from what I'm hearing, and I, I want to phrase this correctly so people don't think I'm above my station or anything, but from what I'm hearing, there might be one more retirement. Right. But like that's only one. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like you're not a, like you're losing three players out of a 33 man squad. One of them very replaceable, no disrespect to Keith Earls, but very replaceable because we have wingers of his standard. Sexton, not so much. Um, and another player who probably would be replaceable because of the position they play in. I'll put it that yeah. way. Okay. And like you're kind of in that ballpark. So like is that cause for a rebuild? No. Like even as it stands, when people say it, I, they say, who's going to be captain? Who's going to be 10? I said, I'm like, why don't we just give captaincy to Peter Omani and take the pressure off for a year so that someone like Pete at this stage of his career, he'll be like, yeah, it's an honor, but like, you know, <laughs> it's fine. Like, And then the attention moves away from, say, James Ryan. James Ryan will be Ireland captain next year. I think we can we can say that safely. But I would rather see someone like Omani or even a Rob Herring, for instance, even though he probably wouldn't start take the captaincy and just take the pressure off or Ian Henderson. And then mm. we're not talking about James Ryan's captain, James Ryan's captain, James Ryan's captain. Um, and just finally on that, like Ireland played unbelievable rugby in that game. I understand they started slow and I understand there was areas of the New Zealand game that were flagged beforehand by people who know way more about the game than you or I. And that's, and that's saying something like if I, if I'm throwing that out about your, yourself for myself, um, they they flag certain things, especially on the breakdown, how narrow they got just to suffocate Ireland at breakdown time. Like they really got really got narrow, and it worked. But again, if Ireland play Fiji, England, Argentina, Wales at the weekend, and probably sixty percent of the time they beat the other three teams on their side to draw. So like, do we really throw the toys out of the pram over that? Mm. So like it's. It's complete result bias to say, and even the whole thing of, well, um, Jack Johnny Sexton was still on the pitch. It's like, yeah, but two of the line breaks, he was the one who made the pass. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying Jack Hurley wouldn't. Jack Hurley is a fine player, but like it's complete, you know, hindsight bias. I I thought Ireland's attack in that last phase was amazing. I, yeah. You when Johnny Sexton was running with the ball, you didn't know whether he was going to go into contact, whether he was going to. Give the short ball on the on the crash line, or or put it out the back, um, and that was what makes it extra amazing that the All Blacks kept them out. That this is for it's, it reminds me, you know, you mentioned off the ball. I've watched many an off the ball video after Leinster lose a semi final, 
and they completely lose their minds. And I'm like, sometimes teams lose matches. Like it, it, it Genuinely. Happens. That is um, exactly what this is. Sometimes teams lose, and it's the same for France. Like France, there was a piece in one of the local papers today about what kind of squad they'll see in 2027. But even that doesn't feel as bad because we knew that Dupont and Entomac and Audrey and Wokey and Flamon and, and so on and so forth. We knew all those guys were going to be there anyway. So like, yeah, that makes no difference. I think for Ireland, we're just so obsessed with four-year cycles. On the one weekend that proved four-year cycles are a load of bullshit. Well, this is what I was about to ask you. So that was literally going to be my next question. So I have, ever since Wayne Pivak and Eddie Jones got sacked last year, I've gone, I am done with four-year cycles because there we got two coaches who were obsessed and every time their nation lost, every time they, as coaches, lost a game, they'd say, ah, it's all about the World Cup, mate. You know, we're building nicely for the World Cup. And it's like, we just lost to Italy and Georgia. Oh, we're building nicely for the World Cup. So I, I've very much come out against that. So are you are you the same? Is the four-year cycle is building for a World Cup, which we've seen this weekend, are decided on, whose thigh is in the right place um <laughs> yeah no is, it's, is it it's, is it a fallacy it is it's gonna be fallacy. like how can you predict in four years time who's gonna be your form player you look back four years ago jack crowley hadn't even played ireland under 20s jemson gibson park was nowhere near his best stuff i could go one to 23 andrew porter was not at loose hit dan sheehan missed out on the leinster academy four years ago you know, Ty Byrne, James Ryan, fair enough. You could you could see that happening. Peter O'Mahony, people wrote him off not even four years ago, but eight years ago because he's that type of player. People were saying Josh van der Fleer hadn't enough bastardry about him as recently as about three years ago. No one knew who Caelan Doris was until this block of fixtures of URC where he really took centre stage. Nobody said Sexton would be at this World Cup. We probably all thought one of Aki or Ringrose or Henshaw would miss out. No one even knew who Mac Hansen was. Never mind being on the radar. They didn't know who he was. People didn't think James James Lowe was good enough and Hugo Keenan was off playing sevens. So tell me now how we're supposed to predict an Irish side for four years' time when I couldn't have even told you half this team were four years ago. Yeah. Abs- it's absolute rubbish. Look at the box. I mean, Manny Leboc being the star man for them and he was actually, he's been absolutely tearing it up for the Stormers for the last two years in the URC. That's not a four-year plan. If um, Andre Pollard hadn't got injured, maybe Leboc wouldn't be the starter right now. The, the flip um, side is maybe Chris Smith of the Bulls would have been the starter. Yeah. And Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't actually know because and, we've and, nothing to go off. And the fact that Leboc is in, that's then changed LaRue because LaRue is a partner with um, Pollard, whereas Leboc's partner is now um, uh, Willemsen. And then you got yeah. the two wingers. This, this Colby... Um, Arden's uh, um, partnership on the wings I've got the stats for it is basically box fresh it's basically not been a thing until this summer just gone so yeah like like you say there's no I don't believe in four year cycles anymore I, there was a time where I did uh, and I also don't if a coach starts saying oh, it's all about building for a world cup it's like that's, that's, probably, the, that's probably the red flag yeah it's probably the alarm bells going off and because of that, I expect one of the losing coaches, well, maybe not check it because he's out of a contract. One of the losing coaches, and I think you can hear which way I'm going to go with this because <laughs> Rasmus is going to be staying on, Ian Foster's out of a job, and um, Michael Cheka probably won't be the Argentina boss in a year's time. But I feel like one of them will talk about four years' time. 
just saying. Yes. No, Subtlety isn't great isn't a great thing on a podcast, but look, make the mark first. <laughs> well, we'll come to uh we'll come to a talking point slightly later. Anyway, um so you touched on retirements just there. Um and obviously the main man for Ireland who is retiring, they're all main men, but the mainest of the men for you would be Johnny Sexton. So just give me your summary of what his legacy is for you and for what he he means to you personally as a player i'm i'm going to give you something now that you could get for 9.99 a month at a certain irish publication johnny sexton is one of our best players of all time there is no disputing this we said this back in march we said this now it does not change the question is 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 johnny sexton our best player ever and i would have him ahead of O'Driscoll. genuinely i think brian O'Driscoll. And even Keith Wood, to an extent, benefited from being the flash player, a very rare world-class player on a poor team. And that happens in generations. Like, Stuart Hogg is a great player, but he benefited from that a bit as well because Scotland were never a top-three team until the last two years of his international career. You know, so that that kicks in for players. And I think O'Driscoll had a bit of that fine player, wonderful defender, wonderful attacker, had a bit of everything. But you think of Sexton's leadership, his mentality, his career progression. Like, he didn't get on with Michael Checa when he was in the academy. But by Checa's last year, he was his starting out half. Like, you even compare that, say, now to a Jack Crowley. And I'm using this example because I know his story better than anyone else's. Um, he has impressed monster coaches since they got into the, into the building. Like, it's not, it's not the same. Sexton was the fiery type he reminds me of the old Paul McGinley quote I want you to have pointy elbows Sexton pushes everyone out of the way he is the man and he's okay with that and we will go through a period more than likely where we have guys but we've had 22 years now of the guy it has been Ron Rogara followed by Johnny Sexton and the fact that Sexton eclipsed Rogara who had Grand Slam winning drop goal two Heineken Cup wins a few triple crowns, like at that time, that is unbelievable. He's gone on to win two Heineken Cups, which maybe Sexton won't thank him for. But like the fact that Sexton has eclipsed as a player is phenomenal. What he's done for Leinster, he's made Leinster a better organisation. I genuinely feel if he retired in, say, 2019, they don't get to two Heineken Cup finals and lose two semifinals by a couple of points. Or was it a quarterfinal the last to Saracens in, actually? Like, I don't think they do, because he's he's that good. And you see it, Ross Byrne might be all as good as Sexton is in terms of just purely 80 minutes of rugby right now. But Sexton's leadership, we talked about his ability to pick a pass, his ability to bring players into the game, to almost take the attention onto himself, to carry the moment. And even, like, the last day, yeah, he missed a penalty, and it's unfortunate, and it changed what Ireland were going for at the end. But even as a strong Munster fan, I did not want anyone else on the field for Ireland at 10 other than Johnny Sexton. Like that's, that's, yeah. that's it. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the most biased fan. I am more partial than, than others, but you don't want anyone else. You want the very best players on the pitch at all times. And Johnny Sexton for me is our best player. Did I always love him? No, because I grew up, I was a kid when he broke onto the scene and took Ron Rogara's jersey. That's fine. I think I think it's okay for kids to have those reactions. Absolutely. But he's been phenomenal. He has never let Ireland down. 
or at least not since he was only a kid himself in the jersey. His career is incredible. His accolades are incredible. If he goes into coaching, I think he'd be a good coach. Um, I'd have the same. I wouldn't want to be coached by him. No, Just well, to... I, I didn't want to be coached by Ron O'Gara either, and he made it work because he decided it's not about me, it's about what's around me and what other people think. And Sexton could as well, because yeah. he has softened in his in his old age, you could say, as as Ireland captain as well. <laughs> ah, he has. Yes. He he's definitely a, a happier, smilier man in Ireland camp than a couple of years ago. And it's a great pity he bowed out like this. But how often does sport have a fairy tale? Paul O'Connell's yeah. last action on rugby pitch was leaving on a stretcher. You know, yeah, McCaw and Carter had. Yeah, I was about to say you can't all be McCaw and Carter. Yeah, but they're the exception. Like, do you know what I mean? Johnny Wilkinson's last game for England. Does anyone remember it? Do you know what I mean? Like, if he never goes to Toulon, people forget about Johnny Wilkinson about four years earlier. And in the grand scheme of things, I'm not saying we fully forget about it, but you understand my point. And that's that's what sport is. Very few go out on top. And to be fair, for Sexton to lose a quarterfinal to an unbelievable New Zealand team, jokes aside, is pretty much the top of the game. It's just not the top honour. That's a shame. Now, I'm kind of going through that with John Fox at the moment because he's he's very clearly not the player he was. And we are there's a few Scarlet's fans who are surprised that he's not chucked the towel in at the moment. So, but yeah, I was anyway. This isn't a John Fox discussion. So, what your point about Sexton and being the star in an amazing team it is remarkable that it's a world number one team with um players who were rugby world player of the year who weren't johnny sexton in it and contenders who will be that this year and yet still there was a feeling that if sexton got injured that was game over for ireland so to be that in some some of that is a bit false like if johnny sexton gets injured against south africa do we beat scotland yeah do you know what i mean yeah (laughs) we do um don't don't try no, that I think, you do. I think you do that's not my point yeah. <laughs> okay, carry on. like that's that's like yeah he's he's johnny sexton he's uber important i'd probably flip with the other even go further than that is johnny sexton at the moment or take this world cup and the 2023 calendar year is johnny sexton the best 10 in the world he's probably right there even if you don't say even if you say no he's not like, can you really say Libok is the best 10 in the world, for instance? Definitely I not. Know. I wouldn't you can't say, really say Moanga. No, you can't really say someone like Entomac because I know Entomac had injuries, so did Sexton, but Entomac blew hot and cold. Like, he literally had a hot and cold five minutes for Chilis before he had the greatest top 14 winning try of all time, probably. Um, do you say Farrell or Ford? I don't think you do because you look at their club record this year. It was pretty poor. You know, by by Saracen standards, I should add, and by by Ford standards, and by England standards in the Six Nations, you definitely don't say someone like Marcus Smith. You don't say someone. I think bigger maybe, but bigger was on a very poor Wales team. I think he was at his standard, but it's hard to judge off of that. So yeah, Sexton is right there as the best ten in the world at the moment, at thirty what thirty nine years of age, thirty eight years of age. Like you can't ask for any more. People will ask for more, but you can't. Well, no. So here's what I think Sexton's unexpected legacy will be. I say unexpected. I think in years, years, like decades time, you you and I will be watching a rugby match and a 10 will run a loop behind a centre and we'll go, 
It's a sexting loop. Oh, and God. All the kids That's will be still like, happening with the Brumbies of uh, yesteryear, before I was born. <laughs> but the, the, all the kids will be like, what is that? Or it will be like a Gary Owen, and people just say, oh, he's run the sexting loop, and people won't even know who Sexton was. Yeah. People will just be like, it's just called a sexton loop, and no one knows why it's called a sexton loop. But we will, because we were there. And it's funny Dan Bigger because... started running them, by the way, in the in his last couple of years for Wales. Dan Bigger started doing sex and loops. Yeah, well, Dan, I never said Dan Bigger was a bad player. I'd like that to be known externally. Now, I don't mean here tonight, but externally, I always rate it bigger. But it's it should probably be said on the Gary Owen. Gary Owen are a real tough club. The fact that a kick is named after them is somewhat ironic. Um, so maybe if you know the Sexton is is less about the loop and more about you know a last minute drop goal in France. So be it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or just taking ages to take a kick or something like that. Yeah, but listen, at least he never got done by the by the clock. Got, no, that is true. Anyway, so you mentioned him there. So one 10 left the stage and that was Johnny Sexton. The other 10 was my 10 who left the stage, which is Dan Bigger. I think it's fair to say on balance that you, Sexton, Sexton's career peaked higher than Bigger's because he was obviously world player of the year and had more European club success than Dan Bigger. Um, so far, you never know what Dan might go on to do with Toulon in the next couple of years, because uh, they've got quite an amazing team. But I was doing a, a bit of research on on Dan, and I posted a thread on Twitter about him. And I think what makes Dan Bigger incredible and what makes him really uh, endearing is, unlike Johnny Sexton, who was the, the guy for his whole career well, apart from when he was briefly emerging under Roch Bigger never really was the guy he yeah. he, Wrong, he wrongly so to some degree I think you could say because he, he was very, always good enough he very nearly lost the Wales jer- number 10 jersey on a few occasions so he got his first cap in 2008 and they didn't really get another run in the Wales jersey until 2013 when Reese Priestland got injured and then he kind of kept it for a few years after that and then Anscombe comes along in 2019 well, Anscombe came along before that, but Anscombe managed to stay fit long enough to become Wales 10 in 2019. So Bigger was down to uh, um, wearing the 22 jersey. And then Anscombe gets injured again, and then Bigger comes back. So Bigger was the only member of the 30 points to three Wales team that didn't go on the Lions tour in 2013. Jesus. He then went on the Lions tour in 2017, but didn't play a test minute. He then went on the Lions tour in 2021 and started every single game. That is really quite bizarre when you think about it, to, yeah. to not peak until later on. And you had all the hype around Finn. And obviously there was the, contra- well, not controversy, but the discussion around Gatlin not taking Sexton. And Farrell was still there. Farrell was still around doing Farrell things. And Bigger had managed to go from not good enough to even go on the trip to number one. In, and it took him eight years, but he got there. And then after that, Pivak made him Wales captain. So he's gone from initially under Gatland not getting an opportunity to being Wales captain and to being the, the, the de facto first name on the team sheet. And I just think, you know, all the people who, including like, you know, the normal crop of like 70s Welsh rugby players who like to write, write a column every other week with no insight into the game whatsoever. And they go, oh, Bigger doesn't run enough. He doesn't do a sidestep. He doesn't do whatever. Look at all of the successful 10s over the last 10, 15 years. You've got Johnny Sexton, Owen Farrell, Andre Pollard, the latter latter end of Johnny Wilkinson at Toulon, 
that they are in the same mold. They are controlling tens, they're kicking tens, they are not runners, they are not steppers. The probably the exceptions to the rule would be Bowden Barrett, who tenure in the All Blacks number 10 jersey isn't as long as people think. And now we've got an, a new generation of Untermax and LeBox and hopefully Costellos and, and Crowleys and things coming through now. But Dan Bigger was a, an excellent contemporary number 10, and he is, in my opinion, comfortably Wales's best 10 of the professional era, um, probably ahead of Stephen Jones. And... Uh, I'd agree. And uh, this isn't like, again, I would have been young when Stephen Jones was on the scene, but I would have grown up watching Dan Bigger because he was young, he was at the Ospreys. A very good Ospreys team as well when he was coming through, which really, yep. really helped because he'd lads like Mike Phillips, James Hook, even Tommy Bow as as a auxiliary centre from time to time, Lee Byrne back at fullback. He'd great pieces around him, and I always felt like Bigger was going to go on to do great things. I always felt like Jones had reached his seat. He got the most out of what he could. Bigger just always improved, in my opinion. And like I seen him, I barely seen him live to be honest, because anytime I went to an Ireland Wales game, he seemed to be injured. But he was just one of those guys. It's like well. We can't be conceding seven kickable penalties against the Ospreys. They're going to win, you know, and that's yeah. that is part of it. Like he was an unbelievable servant. He was an unbelievable player. And I think it's important sometimes to to get the outside perspective. Not big enough, my view, but a lot of Irish would agree that Bigger was a key fulcrum of the Ospreys team that was successful, and the Ospreys team of of kind of after that golden generation. And that's kind of what you'll remember from. Yes, incredible Wales career as well, don't get me wrong, but you remember him being a star point in the Ospreys and a crucial part of Wales. And that's kind of, yeah. kind of the least you can, not the least, but probably the most you could ask for actually as a 10. And, and then he went on to Northampton and developed his, his passing game and started, you know, I think he probably surprised a lot of people, not including himself, of how easily he was able to shine for Northampton and how he was pretty much their best player as soon as he walked in the door and how I think he surprised a lot of people in England and you know for all the stick he gets inside Wales for the kind of 10 years you don't hear that stick from outside of Wales Uh, everyone goes like oh yeah Dan Bigger he's the guy he's the guy Um, so he did he didn't win anything with Northampton but he very much his stock went up nobody would to be honest (laughs) all right okay and then he now he's gone to Toulon and you look at that Toulon team like I said he's got Nath Levu and um, Duncan Bayawa playing in the midfield behind him what a team I can't wait to watch that in the top 14 this year I was at that Challenge Cup final this year when they absolutely chanced the Ospreys and the Ospreys dream centre partnership that we always hear about Glasgow sorry sorry about that Um, I actually wouldn't have celebrated for Toulon if they were playing the Ospreys (laughs) and supporting the Ospreys Monster fans don't support Glasgow for people who don't know. Um, but was at that game a nice Levu and his centre partner, his name slips my mind. You might give it to me there. Payawa. Payawa, yeah. They were unbelievable that night. Like <laughs> they were literally unmarkable against this supposedly great centre pairing. And like Bigger will have a lot of enjoyment with those two because he will get great goal forward ball and he'll have a Lazic Villiers that he could just kick him behind to like even if Villiers doesn't win a kick in behind, say. He could actually win the jackal turnover. I think Bigger's <laughs> going to have a lot of fun with lads like yeah. that around him at in the later end of his career. I I don't think he'll win a hiding cup with Dumaranton, but I think he'll he'll do well there. Yeah, and the the fans already love him. The two long fans already love him from what I see on Twitter. So yeah, so that that's those two. Um, let's now talk about 
what most of our subscribers here on Pirate Rugby want us to talk about, and that's Fiji. So Fiji, au revoir Fiji. So I'm going to um, share my screen now. I've got a few stats. And I've got a new background on my PowerPoint slide. So there's two things I love, Kaylin. It's Fiji and PowerPoints. So I made a PowerPoint about Fiji. So I'm going to share my screen, mate. Give me a shout when you can see it. Not yet. There, ah, here we go. Oh, okay. it's not quite Fiji and Drua, but it'll do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for, for our audio listeners, if you want to jump onto our YouTube, we'll probably post this out as a clip as well. Uh, you can see all of the visuals and all the stats and things, but I'll read them out anyway, so you'll, you'll hopefully get the picture. So Fiji were the best tier two ranked team at the World Cup. They got out of the group. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Frank Lamani was their top point scorer. Uh, they didn't actually have that many tries or that. They had a lot of different try scorers. They didn't have anyone sort of banging them in for them, like centre forward style. So they had two players on two tries each and then everybody else had one try, which I think gives us an insight into Fiji's attack is still quite vibes based in that it's not like a strike play and then either the winger is put away in the corner a la Josh Adams or Lewis Resemmet or the scrum half is on the cheat line and the scrum half grounds it. It's still very much whoever's there scores the try and that's why they get a big diversity of try scorers. But they only scored 12 tries uh, in the whole um, World Cup. And to give you a bit of context, Samoa scored 13 and Tonga scored 11. So that just shows you that maybe that is the next stage of development for this Fiji team, um, is, to, is to get their attack more refined. But you can't talk about Fiji's attack without talking about these two, Rajaraja and Naithalevu. So as far as I can tell, these two have only started two games for Fiji in the centre together. Can you believe that? They started in the last warm-up game against England and they started the first game against Wales and then Rajaraja went to the wing. Now in the quarter-final, Rajaraja and Tuasova swapped. So Rajaraja moved to the centre in the second half. And I mean, just look at these stats, like 11 carries for Rajaraja, 9 for Naithalevu, 78 metres, 70 metres, 7 defenders beaten, 5 defenders beaten. We're going to talk about England's backline in a bit. These two beat as many defenders as the entire England backline did in that game. So, and then you got two lines. To be fair, you, you, try, you try tackling these guys. <laughs> oh my God. Marcus Smith tried. We'll talk about him later. Um, so, yeah, and uh, Naithalevu's leadership has just been inspirational in this World Cup. Rajadra in this game went full Rajadra and was unplayable. But Naithalevu's leadership um, for this team and what he's brought. I mean, he didn't score a try off it, but I'll never forget his run against Australia in the last minutes of the game to get them down onto the five-meter line, where he was just absolutely, he'd been on the pitch, obviously, for the best part of 80 minutes at this point, and he just put his head down and he, and he ran. And yeah. it's kind of like, I, I just, I know these two are over 30 now. I don't have their exact ages, and people have been talking about Rajaraja being on a decline. I just hope we haven't seen these two play together for the last time. I just hope that, you know, the rumours of Fiji joining the Pacific, uh, sorry, the Rugby ch Championship, I hope we get to see these two tear it up for at least a couple more years because the world needs, rugby world needs to see these two play together because, my goodness, like, this is this is what rugby is about. Bring bring Radradra back to, um, back to Toulon. Yes. Get the band back together. 
Yes. Where is he gone now? Can you quickly check for me in the background while I talk about Bossier? Randradra, is he not still in Bristol now? No, no, he's left Bristol because they've got Revovo and Vakatawan now. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't watch that. Or oh, he he's gone to Toulon. Or sorry, not Toulon, Leon. Yeah. Okay, so it is Leon. I thought it might be Leon. I thought it might be Leon. So cool. So that that will be poor Connacht. Connacht got them in the in Europe this year, and they will not be happy. Yeah, so that will be a South of France derby between Toulon and Lyon, but it's definitely worth watching. Hope that's on via play. Anyway, so Botti is the other key man. You know, is one Botti is one of those players who's so good, like it's not interesting to talk about how good he is. Like for his, I think he started three games and played in all five. Meters seventy-four. This is for a loose forward. Seventy-four meters, forty-eight tackles, forty-four carries. For every game that he started, he was the top tackler and the top carrier for Fiji in those games. <laughs> 29 and passes. Elite back row level, yeah. like world class back row. Yeah. I mean, but so, um, our friend Jade, shout out Jade if you're listening, asked, um, is, he a, is he a world player of the year nominee? And you're like, runner up in the top 14, back to back European championships, arguably the best player in the best ever Fiji side. Yeah, I'd say he's yeah. a nominee. He's worth a nomination. Himself and Audrey could get us. Yeah. To Larachelle. I know he doesn't play back row for Larachelle, but you know. He does sometimes. But Audrey is a good shout. Audrey in that first game against New Zealand, his stats were stupid. Like Yeah. He was he was my contender if France won at the weekend. He was my favourite, but now I have no idea. (laughs) It'll probably anyway. Well that's a chat for another pod. It won't be a prop. That's all we know, folks. It will not be be a prop. prop. Uh, seven turnovers won, seven defenders beaten, five offloads, one line break, one try, one try assist. For a, this is like again, I say it again, it's a it's a loose forward. There's not supposed to be like this. And if you look at him as well, he he look he's kind of an odd shape. Like yeah. he, and to think that he's you know when you when you're when the number on your back gets smaller, it's normally a bad sign. If you go from a twelve to a seven. That's normally a sign that something's gone badly wrong, but it, it hasn't. It's gone very right for Bottier. But speaking of things that could have gone wrong, what about this guy, Caleb Munts? Yeah. So Frank Lamani was Fiji's top point scorer in the in the World Cup with 34 points. Caleb Munts got 15 points in the last warm-up game alone. So nearly 50% of that. Yeah. But Batitu was a lot better against England than he was against Portugal. And his kicking for touch was better and he was exciting ball in hand. But he was playing like a centre because he is a centre. He was uh, Fiji's top carrier against England, which is not what you want from your fly half necessarily. Um, and yeah, Teller being injured was a huge blow. I think they'd have been OK. They might have even won- beaten England if they had Teller. But not having months, I think, was a huge miss for their World Cup entirely. I think, you know, it's if, but some maybes and we don't know for sure, but they could well have beaten Wales if months was there. And they could well have not lost to Portugal because they would have rested months, but Teller would have been fit and available. And then, um, obviously, the game against England. It's it's a case of what if. The good news is that he's a young kid and he's going to be around for a long time and Fiji can build a team around him. But But the others won't. It's the only issue. The Bossiers, the Nayakalevus, the Rajadras. Well, Fiji will never be short on... Fiji will never be short on centres. Fiji will always have senses. So that that's the that's the one shiny thing. You got Drew Stacey at fullback, he should be around for a while yet. 
and most of the pack that is with the Drua is relatively young. I haven't got a side on the Sealer Sealer, but he's one of my unsung heroes of the World Cup. Started every single game, started most of the warm-up games as well, started every single game for the Drua this year. And the Sealer Sealer is, you know, if the best avail- if the best ability for a rugby player is availability, then the Sealer Sealer is the best rugby player. Unbelievable. But last slide. So the, the news came out yesterday or the day before that Simon Ryan Louis is not continuing as Fiji head coach. It feels can I, like can I jump in there, Hugh, for two seconds? Yeah, and I know some people don't like um chatting on the podcast. Simon Rao Louis did an interview with the Roar Pod this week and he talked about his year with Fiji. He talked about the squad, the players, and his decision to step away. And I must say I listened to it on the train this morning. It was absolutely brilliant. I, I do recommend people go and like he came across as this endearing type um off the field. He comes across like that in the interview. Like he he was really, really good. I do recommend people go and like it's not he's not being let go. It's not a Vern Cotter situation or anything. He is deciding to to step away. And what a one year at Fiji he has had well, because they were yeah. so good. Well, he was the director of high performance or something similar to that. I don't exact wording of the role. So he kind of gave himself a demotion to be the national men's head coach. But like you say, he was only in the role for a year. And it's like it's like a we hardly knew you type situation. So 10 games, six wins. And you have to bear in mind the four that they lost was Wales at a World Cup, Portugal at a World Cup. OK, maybe forget about that. France away in France in a World Cup warm-up and then England in a World Cup quarter-final. That's not, for Fiji, that's not a bad losses. That is, no. that they, you can hold Very your head high after every single one of those. So, at the like I said, the average um, rank of the opponent based on today's standings that he put, played as Fiji coach was 10th, which when you're considering for a Tier 2 nation, that is high. 32 tries scored, 23 conceded, they walked the Pacific Nations Cup. They absolutely walked it. They had every single game won by half time, and they rotated a lot. And then other achievements: first World Cup quarterfinal since 2007, first win over the Wallabies since 1954, first ever win against England, and it was at Twickenham, and reached seventh in the world rankings for a Tier Two nation. Seventh in the world rankings. Like I say, ten games. What are ten games? Unbelievable. I honestly think that the creation of the Fijian Drua and what Fiji have done in this last year could be one of the most impactful things to happen in rugby for a long time. It could, and if they get let into the rugby championship, I think they don't look back. And I think Fiji are going to be a serious problem. And I, I love that in a, a problem in a good way. Fiji are going to be on the map properly now if they get into the rugby championship and if they get into this new world league, which we don't like, but I think if Fiji get let into that, there's going to be some nations regretting letting Fiji in. Cause I think Fiji are not going to be whipping boys in that. I think they, uh, especially if teams like Australia or Argentina or Scotland or Wales have to go to Fiji to play games. There's not, not, you're going to have to be good to come away from Fiji with a win. Yeah. And especially when Fiji don't get a lot of home games, if you've to go there and kind of not appeal to them, I feel like that would be a bit too um a bit too much because they'll just they'll get up for it anyway. But imagine having to go to Fiji in the first like 
big test game they've played there in years and you're maybe a Wales or an England or an Ireland who are coming in a bit undercooked haven't been playing that well geez I would not like that like yeah. it's a recipe for disaster and it's in all the right ways for a change absolutely mate I, I I've you know even when you know being a Wales fan even when Fiji lost to Wales in that opening game I was a bit gutted especially the way they lost it with Rajaraja dropping the ball I was like, I'm, I'm glad Wales won, and I don't have to deal with the meltdown on Twitter. But I'm, I was, I was gutted for Fiji. So yeah, and it, personally for me, and you know, when I was making all these stats and things, it was quite almost emotional because I did all the research on them and videos that we've done on the past, which people who are new to the channel just jump into our videos and see all the content we've done on Fiji. And really getting to know know them as individuals and things, it's it's been special. And for me to be there at Twickenham when they won that game. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm wearing my Moana Pacifica hoodie tonight, which isn't obviously Fiji, but um, yeah, uh, I just hope that this next appointment they do to replace this man Simon Ryan Louis, it's a huge appointment, and if they get it right, the world is their oyster. Absolutely, there anyway. it's there for them in so many ways, and I do hope it happens for Fiji that they they kick on and they do really really well to be honest and it's going to be tough he's going to be a tough man to replace but as you said they're never short of talent either yeah exactly anyway so let's talk a, a little bit about their adversaries so to give the people at home a glimpse behind the curtain uh Kaylin messaged me today and said i have things to say about england so that this was we'll get, after you invited me on. You didn't invite me on because I think to say about England. Well, those would be so doing a podcast every day. <laughs> we do do a bit of England bashing on this channel, and we'll do more in the future. So let's do some today. So what I'll say first <laughs> is no England back. So I've got all the on the screen here is all of the England starting backline against Fiji, excluding Alex Mitchell, uh, the scrum half. So. No England player made as many metres as either Radraja or Naithalovu. Uh, Marcus Smith made as many carries as Naithalovu with 10, and Elliot Daly made nine, um, but none of the rest made as many carries. Uh, most of them tell, even made... Tell them how many metres um, Elliot Daly went for. Okay, so that stat that I sent you about Elliot Daly was against Argentina. but oh, Against Argentina... Apologies. For, against Argentina, because it's a funny stat, against Argentina, Elliot Daly on the wing made five metres, which for people who don't know rugby stats, wingers get three metres. Like five metres is like a, a bad one carry for most wingers, and he made five metres in the whole game. In this game, he made 69 metres, which is nice. Um, and like I said, the whole, the, 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 the defenders beaten by the England back line amounts to the same as just the Fijian centres. So, as is becoming the trend now, okay, then the England team is, has been leaked early, which has happened for pretty much every game since Borthwick came in, really. And it looks like the Marcus Smith at 15 experiment, at least for this week, might be done. Caitlin, what do you make of what Borthwick's approach to selection has been since he came in? um can we call it an approach like <laughs> does does he know what he's doing i i i've no strong ties to england you know i know i don't hate them like some people do but i've no strong ties to them but i do feel like 
as much as Eddie Jones crashed and burned in his last few years, he was right about certain things. They were too reliant on Saracens players. The Premiership is not a good league. Um, you can't just turn it on um, overnight. Like they're not. The idea that they're in a league where scoring seven tries a game or whatever that stat from the salary cap report was um, is unbelievable. I think it was six tries a game or something like that. But they can't do it at international level. Probably shows that the Premiership is kind of part of the issue. And I don't blame Bortwick for going there, winning the league with a dull, simplistic style of rugby and thinking, I'll do this with England. The only difference is his Leicester team, to their credit, worked their socks off. I don't know if this England team does. Hmm. The back line is probably not the greatest example of this because, to their credit, I think Marchant, I think Johnny May, and Tulani probably gets the most out of his body that he can. But I don't think Elliot Daly is the hardest working. I don't think Marcus Smith, despite what Kevin Sinfield might say, saying these were class, I don't think he's a 15. I don't think Marcus Smith is, is an international 10 because you're going to have players like this. I think he's been found out. He's a goose stepper. He's he's great with ball in hand and all, but you just can't just turn it on. And I don't think Bartwick knows whether he wants to invest in Marcus Smith or not. But well, if you're not... asking me, yeah. he's the third best 10 in England, and he's probably the fourth or fifth best 10 for what Bartwick wants. Well, let's just look at Marcus Smith's stats as a fullback. So he's got two starts as a fullback. Now, if you actually go back and look at it, he's pretty much been playing as a fullback for the last seven games. It's just for five of those games, he came off the bench to come on at fullback. So we only saw glimpses. So you take his two starts versus Chile and versus Fiji. As you might expect, two very different stories. So obviously against Chile, he got two tries, a try assist, all of the meters, all of the passes, all of the carries, etc., etc. Against Fiji, this is for a fullback, right? 46 metres for a fullback is a small number of metres for a fullback to make. It's given tiny. that they're getting the ball kicked to them in acres of space and they all, unless they're just running to the edge of their 22 and hoofing it back, they all get three metres. So normally the highest carrier on every team is the fullback. Ten carries, five passes. So this is the thing. If he's coming to the team to be a playmaker, he's making fewer passes than Elliot Taylor, who's on the wing. Uh, tackles uh, he attempted five tackles got three missed two now I am the first to say that tackle stats don't really mean anything but you know that if you're missing two tackles as a fullback they're probably important tackles kicks from hand two against Fiji so again this is the the ball is getting kicked to him so he's not there to kick if he's only getting two kicks again I think daily kicks more than him defenders beaten one and I think he after he beat that defender, he got tackled by someone else and turned over. Zero line breaks, zero offloads, zero try assists, zero tries, zero points, uh, and then one turnover lost, as I said. This was against Fiji. Fiji are very good, decent defense um, on them. They are not an elite defense. And Fiji, Marcus Smith, by the end of this game, looked like he'd been fed through a sausage machine face first. And yes. that was against what is currently a tier two nation he's now going to play one of the big four and and the big part <laughs> is important there because if now to be fair i think he's going to be ruled out with concussion and not making a lot okay. of that in any ways but if they went into that game with him at full back like i don't think it'd be a fun day from like dale and dan creel 
Creel in particular has had he's been probably the best defensive player at this World Cup. A very weird <laughs> um award to hand out, but he's been yeah. defensively unbelievable. If he's if himself or Peter Stephanie Toy was heading at Smith, um, and he's kind of dancing across the field, he's getting he's getting creeped. Like there's pardon the pun there, <laughs> not intended at all, but it's just the way it is. Um, and I think that England are better with Stewart at 15. I, I'm not a huge Freddie Stewart fan. I think he does the basics well because he's a big man and all that, but I don't think he's a very good rugby player. But he's slow compared to what you have how what you'd expect from him, isn't he? He's not yeah. nimble or quick. He is the one that Habana was on about. He was the one that was slow <laughs> on the turn. <laughs> but listen, he's still a fullback. And you can never replace in the modern game, you can never replace a guy who's just a good fullback. Same with just a good 10. It's kind of like the bigger talk about earlier. It's like there is always a place for a guy who's just solid. Fullback, 10, hooker, tight head, and probably one second off. Yeah. Now, with, with this whole selection of fullback thing, I'm willing to... Having a fly half at fullback is in vogue at the moment. Bowden Barrett is an example of it. Um, Ramos has played 10. He's not in out now 10. Phil himself for the All Black, uh, sorry, for the Spring Box. Tommy um, Allen. Tommy Allen. Oh, that, let's not talk about that. That didn't go very well. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so having a fly half at fullback is, is a completely legit strategy, and I'm fine with it. Marcus Smith has played 1% of his rugby at fullback, and I, I'm damn not, it's not being hyperbolic. If you go on allrugby.com, and he, it breaks out the percentage game time at her position for every player they have on that site. Marcus Smith, it says 99% fly half, 1% fullback. And that 1% is all the England games since Portsmouth came in. Oh, sorry, since this summer. So talk about learning on the job. Like, it's as a selection, if it wanted to be Borthwick's long-term plan, kind of fine. But then as when Ford and Farrell retire, which is going to be before the next World Cup, who's going to be English number 10? Because can you name an English number 10 who isn't one of those three? Right. No, but that's yeah. a different question. It's because I don't really want the premiership. <laughs> but anyways. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so that that's Marcus Smith as a fullback. If I just talk about their wingers, for example, so England's wingers, uh, Elliot Daly and Johnny May. Now the fact that Johnny May wasn't even in the training squad for a while under Borthwick, he got dropped and is now suddenly first choice. And Elliot Daly hasn't played well in any position for about five years and is still first choice for England somehow. That's one thing. Neither Elliot Daly or Johnny May have scored a try so far in the World Cup. They played four games each. And this was in Pool D, which was the lowest quality pool in the World Cup. It's pretty clear that Elliot Daly is being used as more of a playmaker. So it's it's not an uncommon tactic to have your two wingers, a playmaker and a finisher. Johnny May is being used as a finisher, but Johnny May is being put in the number 11 shirt, which he's actually only worn for 20% of his career. Okay, it's not a world of difference, but there is a difference between playing 11 and 14. And he's been played in not his favoured side. Like I said, Elliot Daly is being used as a, as a playmaker, but his stats aren't incredible. He, he's in the team purely for his kicking, and he kicks a lot. He's kicked 12 times and passed 26 times. You compare that to Johnny May, He's kicked zero times and passed five times. So you can see the different roles they are in the team. Johnny May as well, defenders beaten 12, but that's only translated into two line breaks. And that's not like 
they were two line breaks where he went past six players and was incredible. You probably find that most of those defenders beaten, he was running sideways and he goes down as a defender beaten, but he's not actually made a significant amount of inroads. So, you know, and if you compare these stats for these two guys to someone like Lewis Reese Samet, five games for Lewis Reese Samet, more than twice as many meters as either of England's wingers, uh, more kicks than either of them as well. So he's doing both sides of that. More defenders beaten, I think as many defenders beaten as both of them put together. Uh, more clean breaks than both of them put together. Uh, and obviously five tries compared to their zero. So this is just an example of how not there England's wingers are. Like, I'm being horrible, uh, but that is my license to do it on my podcast. Johnny May <laughs> might as well not be on the pitch. He does nothing. He, yeah. So far in this World Cup, he has done nothing for England. Now, if that changes and he scores a hat-trick against South Africa in the semi-final, I'll write a public apology, but I don't think I'm going to be writing a public apology. I just quickly want to refer to this. So this is not mine. So this is uh, Sam Lana. Uh, Sam L stands up. Uh, I'm sure most people on Twitter are aware of him, a fantastic stats guy. Uh, this is how each team uses their wingers. He did a great thread on this. Just um, search it. I've probably shared it um, at some point. If you jump on my profile, you'll probably find it from there. Uh, this talks about where teams are using their wingers. And so it's it's percentage of where the wingers do their carrying, whether it's from the between the touchline and the 15 meter line, and it's how much ball they're getting. So England's uh, wingers are getting around 12% of the team's carries and 65-ish percent of those carries are happening on the wide uh, channels. And yet, so they're still they're still very deliberately being used in attacking places, but the the attack isn't coming to anything. You compare that to New Zealand, where their wingers are doing over 20% of their carrying, uh, or someone like Chile, who are doing uh, over 85% in the wide channels. England are kind of doing kind of average. Their their numbers are pretty much the same as South Africa, but I don't even need to check to tell you that Colby's and Arons's, um stats for South Africa. Uh, are not are incomparable to the ones from England so yeah that's just my little stats dive on how just when people say that England's attack is bad if you, if you take out the Chile game which stat pads them a lot England's attack is possibly the worst possibly the worst yeah. at the World Cup anyway that was that mate that was my little stats that was my powerpoint let's see where we're up to now uh, this is normally where Ender takes over and saves me. <laughs> right. Um, okay. That's World Cup talk done. Other news. The URC is back. The URC is back this weekend. Best league With is back. Bang. <laughs> With a bang. So probably whilst there's no international rugby, most of the chat on this channel will be URC based, but we will always keep an eye on everything around the world. So a couple of bits of news. Uh, for the UK viewers, the URC is still going to be on via play. Um, obviously, they went bust, but they are honouring their contracts, uh, which is to broadcast every game this season. And then you can still catch games, depending on where you are at. Uh, it's either on S4C or BBC Wales or BBC Northern Ireland or BBC Alba, which is the Scottish version. There are free-to-air some games, um, and then all games are on via play. And it's not... Of all the streaming platforms, it's one of the cheaper ones. Everyone's got a different budget. If you can't afford it, it's not for me to, to, to say. But as 
streaming platforms go, it's one of the least expensive ones. What channel is it on in Ireland, mate? Ireland is RT and TG Cahar for the Cúpla Fúcla Skelga. And, and I believe, now my maths could be terrible at this, I think it's something like 56 or 62 games involved with the provinces are free to wear in Ireland. Um, and the only ones that aren't are the Ulster games. Not exclusively, you know, but you know what I mean. Ulster against maybe Zebra or something like that. So it's it's very good. We get a scattering of other games. I think we had like Scarlets like down in South Africa at one stage last year and, you know, things like that, especially South African games. So probably if there's a winner from these contracts, it could well be the Irish viewer because, you know, if you're getting to see Connacht, Munster, Leinster, Gardaí every weekend, should probably say Republic of Ireland viewer, you get to see them every weekend, guaranteed, only on two channels. It's a great way to have it. Yeah, absolutely. That is interesting about what things. Okay, if anybody listening to this is perhaps outside of UK or Europe and isn't sure why Ulster games might not be available to watch, <laughs> Google it. <laughs> and then I'm not going into that. Don't even try. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, so other bits of news. So there's not much we can talk about at the moment, and it's probably something we'll spend more time on another pod. There are rumours of a women's URC being put together. Mm-hmm. We don't know any details on it. Uh, whether it would be a women's team of all of the URC's teams, I don't know. I would think that might be a little bit so. of a, a stretch. I know all of the Irish provinces have got women's teams and they all played each other over the summer, but I don't know if that's important. And if there was one thing, well, the women's team don't need to listen to me, but if there's one thing that I would say to them is feel no obligation to copy the men's game. Do your own thing. Come up with your own solutions. Uh, like rugby and football or soccer. Yeah. Don't don't try and cro- copy it because you probably can't. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll keep an eye on that and you'll be the first to hear about it if there is a women's URC and we will all watch it. Um, so the thing that's changed, this came out a few days ago, is European qualification has changed. So it's now the top eight of the URC um, qualifies for Europe. So there is no um, national based qualification. So before it was whoever is top of each shield. So it was guaranteed to be a Welsh, an Irish, a South African and a Scottish or Italian team because the Scottish and Italians are in the same shield. Um, that That's no more. So probably the likelihood is that there will be no Welsh qualifier um, based on what, how we expect the regions to go this year um, in the Champions Cup. What's your thoughts on that, mate? Because I know uh, one of the, the people who were most upset about the geographical qualification was the Irish because your four teams were good enough to all qualify on merit and normally Connacht didn't. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy about all for that. Um, I would like to add if original rumours, I don't know what was reported this week because when I seen it, I, I'd heard it all before. But when the original format was devised, there was talk that they need a unanimous vote if they were going to keep it because it was basically a split decision when they voted in the first place to go with the, the Shields format. So I can't imagine there was a unanimous vote the other way um, to go to the pure meritocracy. But I do think, zooming out, and I don't mean this in any way to disarm Welsh fans or regional fans or even Scottish club fans or Italian club fans. But I think it's probably better off. I think you could even argue that the Challenge Cup is probably better um, for like teams, so was it 24? So teams 25 to 30, then 
the 20 to 24 is in the Heineken Cup because a lot of teams just don't take that seriously. And the in, sorry, Investec Champions Cup, as we should be calling it, I refuse to, it's the Heineken Cup. Um, <laughs> like that's a dwindling asset at this stage. So is pure meritocracy good? Yes. Is it perfect? No, because half of the English, more than half of the English league is going to be qualifying. Was it like eight from 10 or something like that? Eight from 10. Yeah. At, at time of recording. Yeah. <laughs> Probably important to note. Um, like it's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely well, this, ridiculous. This is my point. This is my point. I, I can, you can't argue against all, you know, the, the Connors fans or whether it might be, in the future, like Lions fans who say, like, oh, hang on a minute, we're better than you, so how can you get our spot? Yeah. But I can't really have that conversation while there's eight out of ten English teams get it. So I'm like, how can one Welsh team getting in is a problem, but, like, Bristol and Bath getting in isn't a problem when, they are, when they're, they're crap? <laughs> well, at the end of the day, why is it called the Investec Champions Cup? And I can tell you one thing for sure, it's not because the Irish are the Welsh clubs. So you know that's that's where we are we're 10 years into we're into season 10 of the epcr era and if you can tell me one positive thing that they have done i would be pleasantly surprised because it's been one backward step after another and that's one of them the fact that english clubs have eight qualifiers i think if anything it's worse even just so far as they're not even repaying their debt in this regard they're not showing up like you know you have the likes of northampton or Gloucester and I don't mean to paint Gloucester in a bad light every time but they're the most high profile example of sending over minnows teams I was like that's just not good enough lads like it especially when you're being given a freebie into Europe at this stage um so listen it's not perfect for the URC I think it's better um and I do like the fact that the shields now are going to be purely you it's going to be purely for those games it's not going to be okay yes. Leinster finished top so they win the Irish Shield it's going to be okay did Leinster beat all the other provinces and for last year because I kept track of this they would have walked it the Irish Shield I think they went six one six lost none in the regular season if I'm right because the semi-final doesn't count and no unfortunately not for the dub cap it doesn't but for the season before I think they'd have only won it on their last Interpro. And that's Leinster. So, like, imagine how competitive it's going to be in all the other Shields where, you know, typically we assume Leinster are going to win 15 of the 18 games. Yeah. So it's definitely going to be very competitive. I think I worked out... Yeah, it'll be on my spreadsheet somewhere. I think I worked out who would have come out on top um, for the Welsh teams if they were just each other. I think Scarlet's come bottom. (laughs) I think because the Dragons beat Ospreys and Scarlet's. Dragons have got a thing over us. Anyway, uh, so let, let's do that then. So let's let's predict winners of each shield um, this season. So let's start with the Irish Shield. Are you are you backing your your guys to be the shield winners? No, I um I'll go with Leinster. Um, I I I have Leinster, Stormers, Munster, Ulster as my top four in the URC this season. So I'll just get that in now. So. I think Leinster win the Irish Shield, and I, I might as well just go around the around the room. I think Stormers, if not the Bulls, the Bulls are just one of those teams you can just, you just can't bet against them because of that style of rugby. So the Bulls um, are my pick, 
the Bulls are my pick because they've been very active in recruitment. So really, really the Rue plays for them now. And they're, they're, I think there's a few other players who've joined them as well. So, and I've heard talking to some South African fans that the Stormers had a bit of a wobble financially. Um, yeah. In the they needed a divorce to keep them kind of going. Yeah. And then the Sharks, the Sharks should win it based on the squad they've got, but for whatever reason, they don't. And then the Lions are, unfortunately, the, the weakest South African team. So I'm going the Bulls for the South African Shield. Yeah, that's fair. I'll go... I have to go Scarlets for the Welsh one, don't I? No, I, I do. I can see a good Scarlet season, if I'm being honest. And I'll go with Glasgow to win the Scottish Italian, even though that so pains I, me. <laughs> I disagree on the Welsh one. Um, okay. If the Ospreys don't win the Welsh Shield, it is a massive underachievement. The Ospreys squad, you'll hear Ospreys fans talk about how they lose so many players to Wales and how, you know, Armand Jones is, is left and Reese Webber's left and blah, blah, blah. The Ospreys squad is comfortably the best in Wales. And the, the really the fact that they finished where they finished in the URC last year behind Cardiff, um, behind the likes of Connacht and, and Benetton Edinburgh, and I'm not sure if they finished behind Edinburgh, but close to Edinburgh. It is ridiculous. The, the Os- that Osprey squad, Ospreys in their home matches, should win every game. I watched a, a, a Ryan Lowe video, a slightly old one the other day, and he said, like, how is this team not unbeatable in Swansea? Because their squad, on paper, if you read it, is unbelievable. It is. Can I, can I give a bit of a dig as to why they're not unbeatable in Swansea? Go ahead. They don't have an atmosphere. Like, like hey, you can't they build give a away thousands of free tickets to to school children yeah and that's great and all but like they're probably gonna have more of a fortress when they go to london than most of their home games so and i love the ospreys but like that's just they're looking they're looking at potentially moving is is a rumor that they're looking to to move to a smaller ground which i think most people would be in favor of um but no i I agree but based on this on the squad that they've got the ospreys should comfortably win the well shoot um right so that's our URC preview. Now, I, we could predict the league, but I don't want to predict a winner because I think your team, Munster, and my team, Scarlets, have proved that the the best team doesn't necessarily win the URC because of the eight-team playoff format. What's your opinion on large playoffs? Is it exciting and brings excitement and means that more is to play for on all the games? Or does it is it less sporting in a way? I think when you look back on the URC season the last two years, it's proven to have worked. Like we've had one blowout in the knockout games. And yeah, it got highly talked about when Leinster hammered Glasgow. But like Leinster hammering a team in the RDS when a team doesn't show up, like night follows day. Like they just it just happens the whole time. Um I have no problem with it. I think it does keep it competitive. You look at last year we had Leinster against the Sharks, yeah, Leinster won that by about twenty points. But you had Connacht, who finished seventh and scraped into the playoffs, granted with a week to spare because of results and all that, um, went up to Ulster and won. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it was second against, well, sorry, second would have got a bye. If you went sixth against third, it would have been different then. Do you know, and then fourth against fifth. So I think it was actually really good to see. And I think it was good for, for that reason to prove that quarterfinals can work. And it makes for a great, great weekend of rugby as well. You know, True. maybe it's just a maybe it's just a quarterfinals thing at the moment, but it did make for good rugby. You don't need it to be top four. I think Premiership needs it to be top four because now they're at ten, 
uh, yeah, because eight from ten, like who would ever think eight from ten should should go through to anything? Um, <laughs> and France, I think France have hit the sweet spot with their system because of yeah. the importance of even how they do like the semi final draw and things like that with the extra day being kind of important there. Um, and for they've the team. got the they've got relegation and the relegation the relegation access game as well. Yeah. So they've got. So yeah. they have a system that works. I think the URC have found what works for them. And listen, income is important too. Do you know, I understand that the clubs who are typically in the top four, not always teams who are struggling for income, especially, you know, Leinster, Ulster, Munster to a lesser degree. But it does make a difference. You know, if the Bulls, say, came third and they drew the Stormers, they get a crowd. Like they, they get a very healthy crowd. We've seen it with the Stormers home games last year in the playoffs. Jeez, they nearly sold out the place, you know. So I, I'm a big fan of it. And maybe not, I wouldn't have been at the start, but I am now. I think it, it works. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, I can see both sides. I can see how, because like I said, Scarlet's benefited from it as well, where we scraped into the playoffs and then won the thing. Um, I can see how it does, it makes the first third of the season kind of irrelevant. Yeah. But anyway. But um, then club rugby is not the be all and end all. You shouldn't need your big stars to be playing 25 games a year for it to be feasible or 25 yeah. club games. So hmm. does that make a difference? Yeah, I guess. Anyway, speaking of club rugby, let's run down some of the results that we've had this week. So first I'll talk about something that isn't club rugby, which is WXV. So this was on all over the place, all over the world. It's not all held in, in one location and it was it meant that it was different broadcasters i think you every anything that's not broadcast in your region you can get on rugby pass tv which is free but you do need to sign up for it put your email address in and things it's ridiculous Anyways, and one <laughs> and it was all funny kickoff times because it's all around the world so there's some at night there's some very early in the morning but these are the results italy beat japan uh, this is in uh, wxv2 wxv1 starts this weekend so wxv2 italy beat japan uh, Scotland beats South Africa. There's a great clip of a tackle in that game that if you go on to, I think it's either uh, Rian Lowe or Jared Wright's uh, Twitter, you can you can see the clip of it. Absolutely. Uh, the poor thing got absolutely monstered, but <laughs> the commentator loved it. Uh, and USA beats Samoa in what was quite a close game. And there's actually a link there because there is a big Samoa community in USA. So there's actually something a bit more to that game than just two random countries. And then WXV3, Ireland put 109 on Kazakhstan, which I think kind of shows like the weakest team in the Six Nations is still stronger than the strongest yeah. team from other it's, places. It's, it's very poor for world rugby, in my opinion, because we were talking about the Six Nations and the imbalance at the start of the year. Well, like if you're putting up Ireland, or even if, say, it's Italy next year, hopefully Ireland don't finish last, or Scotland, and you're putting them up against a team like Kazakhstan, like that's it's it's actually unfair and i don't mean that in like a, a arrogant kind of way but like world rugby won't grow the game with 100 point games yeah i agree you know anyway so there's that one uh fiji beat colombia and spain beat kenya it is nice to see different teams this is what i'm saying about the women's yeah. team do something different don't do what the men did do your own thing it's more like sevens and that's why sevens is marketable because you have different countries you have that kind of festival atmosphere i understand it's a weekend event but like realistically if i'm being really honest i'd have loved to have seen these games being played in london or something 
and have them around a few rounds. I understand the Premiership came back last week would have made it difficult. But if you had these on in, say, London or around London, and you had, say, England's game on in Twickenham, you had Ireland's game in the Stoop because they're Ireland, you had Italy's game in Allianz Park, you had Wales playing in, I don't know, maybe Brentford. I'm just giving random examples here. Yeah. That could have been something you could have done and not having it on Rugby Pass TV almost exclusively. But listen, world rugby yeah. and growing the game doesn't really go together, even if they say it does. Yeah, I see that. Also, I think maybe we need to think about what time of year we hold it because whilst I know it's it's difficult anyway, so there, there was no real right way to do it. But whilst the Men's Rugby World Cup is going on and like you say, all of the club season is getting back underway and you've got um, things in the UK like the English football premiership and things happening. Maybe October isn't the best time to hold it. Maybe find another gap. Anyway, that it's the first year of it. We'll give them this year's grace. They'll learn from it. I'm sure they'll do something different next time. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> Pro Day De. Um, Tafts abroad, Sam Davis scored all but two of Grenoble's points as they still managed to lose. Um, he scored two tries uh, for them. Uh, Nicola Martins and Raphael Storti are back scoring in the Pro Day De already. Um, literally, they just, I don't know if, they would have got a taxi, I suppose, from wherever they were in France to go and play for their Pro Day Disney. Neither of those two are going to be playing in the Pro Day Disney for very long. They are going to be no. signed by someone big soon. They'll be in the top 14 next year, 100%. Yeah. And it was Marquez, actually, who gave Storty the, the, the score. If you search it on, actually, if you go on the Pro Day Disney YouTube channel, they have SI de la Week, or whatever they call it. Um, yes. And they have a compilation of all the tries. So it's really good. Pro Day Disney is actually more engageable than some other competitions um and it's in french so yeah they scored uh Mar marquez uh picked up the ball and he had a clear run in front of him but he gave it to storty and storty scored it as well so the portugal lads combining there um uh, van are still top of the league after beating dax welsh prem landovery finally got beaten by Ebervale. Ebervale are now top of the league rgc also got their first win of the season by beating swansea so they're off bottom uh, All Island League. Do you ever watch the All Island League? Do you know anything about it? I'm not as much as I should. Um, I won't lie because I'm kind of between where I live is kind of between a couple of clubs, so not really connected to one. But um, realistically, there should be more AIL. It's actually a re it's actually a really good standard. It's probably, I think the top of where it is is probably higher than what the BNI Cup was, which considering it's a club game is decent. Yeah. Do you know? Um. And with my kind of untrained hat, Turnier and Clontarf are probably going to walk back and win it because if you've seen the Turnier's signings list this year and compared it to, you know, anyone who kind of follows club rugby in Ireland, you'd realise probably a bit of a money aspect to this. Um, but listen, they're I'm assuming uh, they're, they're Dublin teams. I'm assuming they're, they're, they're both Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Shannon are currently top, but it's only two games in, so I wouldn't read into yeah. anything into <laughs> Um, right, Super Series in Scotland. Uh, Aisha beat, uh, sorry, Aisha lost to Heriot. Um, Aisha is still top, but the gap is only two points, and there's two points in hand, two games in hand, sorry, for Heriot. So they're probably going to go top. Future 15 are still winless. They got beat 78 0 by Sterling Wolves. Uh, NPC, uh, Taranaki got to the final after beating Canterbury, and Hawks Bay surprised Wellington, who had been top for most of the year. 
they're now going to play the final. I want to say that's on Saturday morning. You can watch that on Sky and Now TV in the UK. I'm not sure what the uh, Irish deal is. Everyone, it's, jump on it's, it. it's Sky for us as well. I'm just happy that um, I think it was Tasman that Alex Nankovell was playing with. I'm just delighted they're not out because he's now in Limerick. So, <laughs> listen, I'm sorry to the people of, I believe it was Tasman, but uh, selfish. Oh, well, I liked Tasman because they had um, more on the Pacifica players playing for them. Anyway, so yeah, so that's, I believe, Saturday morning. So, it's always a nice way to start you Saturday. Uh, and then finally, English Premiership is back. Uh, Exeter battered Saracens 65-10. Saracens actually learning what it's like to play with a real squad these days. Um, oh, and <laughs> Ben Spencer scored a hat. Uh, ben Spencer scored a hat trick for Bath, or we should call them Kalen's Bath because you're a Bath fan. This as as stop now. Uh, I'd like to clarify this because people think this as well. I'm not necessarily a Bath fan. I like Bath because they're a club with history, and I like Johan Van Gran Van Gran as a person. That's about it. And Joran van Graan has proved that he can get consistency out of a team. And you know what? If he can get consistency with Finn Russell, <laughs> that would be some achievement. That Finn Russell move to Bath makes sense for Finn Russell's accountant and Mrs. Finn Russell and probably no one else. Because if he's get, uh, if you're getting your money, who am I to argue? But yeah, anyway, enjoy your Ferrari, Finn. Anyway. That brings us to the end, guys. Uh, no TV guide today. Stay tuned to socials. It will all be shared there. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Kaylin, for stepping in and saving the no day. Problem. It's good to be on. Uh, and we'll hopefully welcome back Enzo next week. So thank you, everybody. Enjoy your week and enjoy your rugby. Sports Social Podcast Network.